0: You don't have control over any of that. What you have control over is what you do. To me, that's every day waking up. The first thing I do is touch my head to the floor and say mantras to, to Krishna. You know, Vishnu Vishnubadaya, Krishna and my and my teacher. I thank them for another day of life to get after it. Especially I see how fragile life is. Look at all the death I've had happen around me. I'm like, shit could be over in a minute, man. Who knows when when death will come? But it will come and how we live our life prepares us for that moment that's the ultimate test these are like the little quizzes what do i do in this situation that's why probably said at the time of death everything you believe in will be tested ultimately
1: greetings and love beautiful humans it's ben hardy co-host of the show this week mike and i had john joseph mcgowan on the podcast He's the lead singer of Blood Clot and the former lead singer of Cro-Mags. He's a legend in the punk and hardcore scenes, but he's also a coach, a motivational speaker, and an athlete who has competed in numerous Ironman races. He's the man behind John Joseph Discipline, his business that mixes online classes and individual consultations and teaches discipline, accountability, and helps people hit or surpass their goals. His story is almost beyond belief. It's a tale of abuse, addiction, violence, but also one of recovery, redemption, and reclamation. We talk everything from 80s punk rock, getting incarcerated, and growing up on some of the hardest New York streets, to eating plant-based, exiting the material world, and finding Hare Krishna. We get into discipline, and of course, PMA, or Positive Mental Attitude, the approach to life that helped John not just survive hardships, but come out the other end thriving. Just a heads up that John does not hold back on much in this conversation which is all the more reason to lean in a little closer. We hope you enjoy, and welcome back to Terrain Theory. All right, we are live. John Joseph, welcome to the Terrain Theory Podcast.
0: Hey, it took a minute for this to happen, but... (laughs) Thank, thank you for having me.
1: <laughs> no, it's a pleasure having you here. And and yeah, we normally don't, don't do Zoom. I love that you don't use Google Chrome. There's something nice about that. Let's not use yeah. Google, right?
0: I don't know. Well, I don't know what the fuck's going on. I'm like, I have like kindergarten level intelligence when it comes to uh, <laughs> all this fucking technology shit. <laughs> Basically, my girl installed all the, all the shit I got. So, uh, you know.
1: While analog till
2: the end baby analog till the end
0: <laughs> that's it
1: hey all right so so for the listener who doesn't know you let's get the cliff note version of your backstory who is john joseph
0: um well you know i did write this book let me see one of many which was the evolution of a crow magnon the memoir but uh you know just uh Came into life fighting, man, you know, fucking uh, dad was an alcoholic, washed up pro boxer, beat on my mom. Fucking, you know, it was just a bad situation. My mom fell into depression. Uh, The doctors put her on fucking back then. This We're talking in the 60s. By the time she was 23, she had three kids alone, no money. The dude would break in, beat the shit out of her, rape her take her fucking money to feed us total you know total fucking animal and um i I just remember like the last time I ever seen him he broke in and was beating my mom so severely that uh you know the, and, and the neighbor called the cops the cops came in and took us away and my mom spun into depression from everything and you know she even was suicidal and then they uh, t- removed us from the house and put us in orphanages and then foster care, abusive foster home for six years uh, with uh, myself and my two brothers. And uh, just finally, like, uh, you know, they threatened us. I mean, the, the, you know, I'm writing I'm writing this new book on addiction and, and um, the stats are that 85% of addicts say that they were abused as a child, you know, and and uh, ha- having to deal with that, uh, I dealt with it myself uh, through addiction. I was an addict for many, many years. I got 22 years clean and sober now. Um, and I try to help, other. I just lost my brother in uh, October of last year to addiction after a long battle with that. So I'm living it every day. I'm out there on the front lines helping people, but it was just uh you know one of the things that this dude did to us i spoke up in school cuz i mean this dude was leaving welts on us and and then other shit was going on too um with the older kids in the home were doing shit to me and my brothers abusing us sexually like whatever it, it was just hell and uh i tried to tell the school and uh Fucking dude comes down, tells a bunch of lies, they believe him, takes us, takes me to a fucking mental institution and smashes my face against the fence and, you know, threatens to put me in there if I ever said anything again. And we didn't say anything and um, we couldn't tell my mom because one time we tried saying something on a home visit. And she had a nervous breakdown and tried to take pills and slice her wrist. We had to call my uncle Rocco. God bless his soul. He passed away. Army veteran um, came and, you know, we didn't get any home visits for a while. So after that, we just didn't say anything to her because she couldn't deal with it. So we, I mean, imagine being a kid and having to keep all that shit inside of what's going on to you. That's, And um, they, we finally just said, fuck it. We kept this diary of everything they did to us for like years. And when we finally gave it to the social worker, this, like a grown ass man broke down crying and, you know, it was just, then we got bounced to other places. I ended up in St. John's home for boys in Rockaway beach in 1976. And it was all black and Spanish kids from the five boroughs. And it was an all white neighborhood Rockaway and, You know, they called it like the Irish Riviera. It's like, you know, blue collar Irish. So they were very racist toward the kids in the home. And then they, in turn, which I don't blame them, took the shit out on me and my brother, my older brother, E, who was in there with me. Frank, the younger brother, the one that passed away, went to another foster home in the five towns in Lawrence, Long Island. And they had us in, you know, so eventually, I mean, I got jumped one night by... Everybody and they beat the shit out of me and uh, my brother and this fucking maniac Bobby Bobby K came and you know a, a, and it just got worse and worse and worse and I was getting drunk and I was you know abusing alcohol pills I, I you know I was trying to deal with all this internal pain and I dealt with it by uh, self medicating I did every drug under the sun and after a while I I, I split. I uh, started splitting in, in 76 and going onto the streets and selling drugs and doing whatever. And I got caught and then went back to the home. And then in 77 in the winter, I, uh, I split for good and went on the streets. I was a heroin mule in 77, going down to Alphabet City, selling drugs, like just fucking insane shit. But there was a lot of good stuff too. Like, It was kind of like every kid's fantasy, man. I got nobody telling me what the fuck to do. I mean, you know, fucking just out there going to punk rock clubs in the summer of punk 77. I saw the Ramones out in Rockaway, saw the Ramones, saw everybody hanging out, dead boys, fucking. I had this punk rock girlfriend who I didn't know had a heroin habit, and she ended up dying on me, so, like, it just... It was just one thing after another. I got into the angel dust trade uh, with somebody that was manufacturing it. And that was a violent, insane world. Um, And then I ended up just getting locked up. That was my third offense. I went upstate, went to Spofford in the Bronx, where Mike Tyson – I mean, this was before Tyson. This was seventy eight. But it was buck wild. Anybody that does research on Spofford uh, in the South Bronx, and I was the only white dude in there. I, I From the day I went into the Indoc Center, they told, the cops told me, the Irish cops rode me from Pew Gardens, and they were like, the last fucking white boy we took here got stabbed up. Like, you better fucking protect yourself. Fucking, you know, and then you learn the ropes of the institution, and I just went in fighting like the first day I got to my unit uh B3. I was throwing down, I put a chair over somebody's head, knocked another motherfucker out. Like it's just that's 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 that life. If you want to live that life, you want to live that life on the streets and live that life in the institutions, you better you know, it, it's not like these kids all think they get street cred. Oh yeah, I fucking I murdered somebody. I did this. I stabbed somebody. But your life's over when you when you do that shit. And and when I went upstate, uh, they took us. We were involved in the Scared Straight program, which they took us at that time to Rawlway State Prison in New Jersey. It's now called New Jersey Federal, whatever, uh, New Jersey State Penitentiary or whatever. But it was Rawway and they took us to Fishkill and they took us to other prisons and we met with the lifers who were never getting out of prison. And they told us what's waiting for, you know, first they scare the living fucking shit out of you. Like, you know, you're going to be my Maytag, my bitch, hold on to my pant loop. They made us put all, I mean, if you watch the old documentary, like before the TV show came around, that's, that's. There was different institutions that went there, Lincoln Hall, um, Hawthorne. So the ones that made it on the TV were Hawthorne, but Lincoln Hall, we were the first ones to ever go in there, the Elm Cottage, the unit that I was in. And... uh, You know, yeah, they scare you, but, you know, again, they didn't, they didn't give you, you know, but I, I, it's when I first started learning about discipline, because the inmates were like, you got to work your program, you know, and I was like, what the fuck is that? They're like, you got to do shit every day, positive stuff every day to better yourself while you're incarcerated. That means studying. That means, you know, getting your weight up, what they said, which was, you got to work out because, Motherfuckers is gonna, you know, that's the way it was. And I went in 135 pounds. When I came out of there, I was two years later, I was 165 boxing, doing, you know, just every day getting after it, studying. I started writing stories and all kinds of shit. But ultimately, when I got out of there, I went right back. They they had to release me to somebody because I was under 18. So my mother, um, I never grew up with her, so now she's got fucking me and my brother there just getting out of lockup, so we were just getting fucked up every fucking day, no goals in life, no nothing, so I re-offended, and I got caught with drugs, I got caught with heroin, because you know, I was back at Rockaway Beach hanging out with the junkies, and they caught me on 116 with like a bundle, which is 10 bags of dope, I was selling for somebody so then they gave me the option either you know my mom's was dating a recruiter and uh, he said i i can squash all this shit and you go in the navy and this and that and I, I so i chose the navy but the thing was i tried to excel uh with everything that i was doing but i still had a lot of buried baggage man and i dealt with it by getting fucked up So when I got out of boot camp and got sent down to uh, Norfolk to the command, I was doing drugs, smuggling drugs, selling drugs, and I I caught a case down there. I sold some dudes set me up. So at the King's Head Inn, I sold pills and acid to an undercover cop. This guy set me up. uh, That got caught. So that's what they do. Oh, you know. I can give you a drug dealer. So it's just crazy, man. Like when you look at all the shit and how one little instance could have changed the path of your life, like completely. Like I was looking at doing time. And then all this other shit happened in, 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 in the military. I beat the fuck out of this like redneck on my ship that kept fucking with me. And, calling me a faggot and all this shit for being into punk rock. And I just kept warning him and he didn't listen. He kept just, you know, I I always stayed to myself. I was never a bully, but, you know, motherfuckers don't know the, the path that people that come out of that, what they're capable of. I was locked up with murderers and fucking dudes who would just kill you. They didn't care. And they was juvies. So, what are you going to get, five years? And then they get some street cred. They don't care. Mm-hmm. And um, I just kept warning the dude. I'm like, yo, man, like, stop fucking with me. And I was restricted to the ship because of the court case. So my ship went to, like, Bahamas and, Port- and all this other shit. And then, like, I had to stay on the ship watching everybody go on Liberty and They working me like a fucking dog, not getting paid. They took all my money. I got, you know, so I'm basically like, they working me 12 hours a day, four musters a day, with the command duty uh, master at arms, which is the police on the ship. I had to muster four times a day, work details. Like, imagine that shit. and. The weird thing was before we deployed, I had gotten this like oral surgery and my fucking shit got infected. So I was like fighting this infection and fucking working in the hot sun and this motherfucker just came by me. And I was like using a deck grinder, which is like this thing with teeth. We had a helo deck on, on my ship aft. We would take on like helos and. Special forces motherfuckers would come fast roping onto the back of the ship, exercises out at sea, you know, seals and fucking just. So I was there with the deck grinder, like, bah, 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 bah. it's like just fucking, and in the hot sun, we had just left Bermuda and the dude walks by. So you use the deck grinder and then you put red lead, which is a primer, and it was red paint with lead in it. And then the non-skid gray paint, haze grain underway the way goes over that. So this motherfucker walked by and I'm on the deck painting and kicks the fucking paint can and sends paint all over me. He's like, faggot motherfucker. And he thought because he was a big dude that that was, you know, but the world I came from at 14 years old on the street was if some motherfucker's bigger than you, you pick something up, an equalizer. And that, and I'm like, all right, this pipe makes me your size, motherfucker. In his case, it was a paint can. So I walked into the Bolson's locker. I fucking dogged down a couple of the latches. I picked up a paint can. And then you could see that switch came on with him where he was like, he's like, yo, yo, like, like the look in my face was like. All right. Anyway, (laughs) I beat him in all the soft tissue on his body, his legs, arms, until he shit himself and fucking passed out. I cracked him and went to my rack and just waited for the shit storm and it came. (laughs) Fucking had to go to Captain's Mask. Now I'm fucked, totally. And the infection got so bad, they had to medevac me off the ship on a from a Hilo back to Roosevelt Roads, Puerto Rico. And this was 1980 before there was computers. So they botched the orders that I was supposed to be handcuffed to the fucking hospital bed. So as soon as the IV and everything and the infection cleared, they were like, All right, we're gonna put you in this temporary housing unit, see what your command wants to do. And they went down to South America to like the tip of fucking Argentina and all that for shell back. So I was just running around Puerto Rico, taking acid, hanging out with these crazy military motherfuckers, getting in bar fights out in the middle of nowhere with these fucking crazy like we had a mob of dudes with machetes come at us one night. We beat these dudes up that fucked with us. And then I went back to Norfolk and. Found out the day my ship was coming in and I just split and that was it. I I was like gonna go to prison. I'm like, I can't do that again. So I cut out and uh I had nothing. And I went to DC because I had been going to punk shows and all that. Like I met the bad brains at the Taj Mahal, this punk band that instilled this like kind of like PMA, you know, positive mental attitude. They had this song, Attitude. Don't care what people might say, we got that attitude. And I was like, yo, what is that shit about PMA? And he took it from his pops, HR. It came from the hood in D.C., Southeast. And his pops was a fucking uh, warden in the prison. And he gave HR the book, Think and Grow Rich, and all these other books by Napoleon Hill. That's where we got the PMA, positive mental attitude. It's not what we go. Through. It's not what we go through in life. It's how we react to it. It's the mindset that we have in a reaction to the bad things that come. And that was something like nobody had really said to me before. Like it's, it's how we deal with shit. And plus, the bad brains are the baddest motherfuckers on the face of the earth. Anybody seen them? I was able to hang. I was hanging out with Henry Rollins, Ian Mackay, fucking all the DC crew getting in fights in D.C. against rednecks. Like, back then, the punk rockers were the outsiders. Now every fucking redneck has a fucking mohawk. But back then, (laughs) if you, like, we had, I had shaved my head, not a skin, but just, like, I wore fucking boots with barbed wire on it, fucking chain belts, fucking crazy shit. Like, the people on the base would bug the fuck out. Like, you know, who the fuck is this, you know? But... When I split, they put me up in their apartment. I stayed with them for like a couple of weeks. And then I made my way back up to New York and got out of there. I I hitched a a ride with this band, The Undead. And they were from New York. They played the 930 Club. So they gave me a ride back to the city. Get out the van. First motherfucker I meet, HR from the Bad Brains. Started hanging. They were playing. I hung out. You know just craziness man like this puerto rican gang was over there like fucking with everybody beastie boys were hanging out everybody it was like everybody knew everybody like it was just a small clip the scene back then was like maybe 50 regulars going to show like everyone you know and uh we had uh this gig and with the bad brains were playing and this Puerto Rican gang came in there trying to fucking shut the show down because it was they had a big drug spot right there and nobody stood up. And this dude tried to stab me, and I fucking beat him down. And he was the lead one of the leaders of the gang, and they were serious. Like they're in that movie. If you there's a great movie called Rubble Kings R U B B L E, and they talk about this particular gang. And they were murderers, you know? And it was just crazy because they— nobody stood up to them. And then I got in a chain fight. Motherfuckers trying to stab me. And, uh, you know, they put a fucking KOS on me. I had to split, kill on sight. Uh, I got stabbed in the shoulder trying to get away. But in all of that, The positive was I developed a closeness with the Bad Brains. They squashed the beef with me. Like, I wasn't able to go to Alphabet City. Alphabet City back then is what they call the East Village now. Much different. They had a saying. If you went to Avenue A, you were adventurous. Avenue B, you were bold. Avenue C, you were crazy. Avenue D, you were dead. I lived in an abandoned building on Avenue between Avenue C and D. On um, night on uh, what street? What the fuck was that? Ninth Street, seven thirteen East Night. I lived in an abandoned building across the street, seven hundred East Night, where the guy, East Village butcher, chopped up his girlfriend and made soup out of her and fed her to the homeless. Like just crazy shit. You can't even make the type of stuff up that that I got, you know, had to deal with on the streets just growing up, seeing people get murdered in front of me as a fucking 15-year-old kid. I tell that story in my book, you know. This fucking dude got hacked up in a bathroom stall, like, mercilessly. And I was the only witness. Like, I thought the dude would murder me, and for some reason he didn't, you know, he just... But... You know, then the Cro-Mags came and all that. I got into the music. I I, I started turning my life around. I climbed out. I always knew music was going to be my thing. Mm-hmm. So HR was the first person in 1981 to put a microphone in my hand to sing it for the Bad Brains and say, this is what you're meant to do in this world. And I started singing. with The Cro-Mags originally founded in 81. And then that fell apart. And then I started another band called Blood Clot, which was all the roadies for the Bad Brains. So we went on tour with them down south and nobody knew they were black. Their manager was our drummer, Dave Hahn, the late Dave Hahn. So when he sent the promotional posters out, there was no pictures of the Bad Brains. When we did Philly, D.C., no problem. Once we got south of D.C., First bar, um, (laughs) the big bad wolf of North Carolina. We walked in and and it was a KKK biker bar. They were like, you know, what the fuck do y'all fucking want? And called us, called them niggers, and like just crazy shit. So we had the fucking the shit, you know, just craziness. But pro mags, we kept going, made records. But once again, when you don't deal with the issues that you have and you could try to put all the facades up there, the tough guy, all the bullshit, right? The mask we wear in public. Underneath, there was still all this trauma and pain and hurt. And I dealt and I got betrayed by a band member that was supposed to be my friend. He robbed me, stole all the money, treated me like shit. Like when the fame started coming. And it fucked with me because I was like, this, this is a motherfucker I, I went to bat for. Him. Mm-hmm. Like there was gangs that wanted to kill him for beating up gay people. Bad. And they gay people took a contract out on him with the same dudes that I had the beef with. So they came to me out of respect. I was able to squash it. Like so many people were like, yo, if you wasn't that dude's boy, he'd be fucking in the river, bro. So it just hurt that like this motherfucker betrayed me like that. And I don't deal with betrayal well. I felt my mom betrayed me, the foster parents betrayed me, everybody betrayed me and lied to me. So that's the one Achilles heel that I have that flips me the fuck out. So I dealt with that. I quit the band and then I sunk into fucking addiction for two years. Heavy, hardcore, freebase, crack cocaine, pills, drinking, Mur- robbing drug dealers, almost murdering drug dealers to get fucking, you know, quarter kilos of fucking blow and just insane. Talk about it in the book, and I almost—I uh, had drug dealers put uh, KOSs on me. Fucking uh, burned every bridge possible you could think of, I, and I say, you know, people talk about rock bottom. I was under the motherfucking rocks. I was with the maggots and the fucking, you know. That's where I was, and I lost everything, and I was almost murdered in a fucking crack house. Dude hit me with a fucking two-by-four and took all my shit, and I was just, you know, that was it. That was it. I just, I I, I flipped the switch and said, that's it. No more of this, and it's been, a, you know, a struggle ever since. And and I replaced all of that negative shit. I dealt with it. I I I exercised my demons by writing this book, and it took almost five years to write that. And um, that's how that was my therapy. I had to get it out. And I always tell that story. Even Robert McKee, I was in his class, and I was trying to utilize. I was writing a screenplay based on what I went through as a kid, and I said. You know, you would always. If anybody saw adaptation, that was when when Nicholas Cage, his brother, goes to the writing course, and he goes to the writing course. That was Brian Cox portrayed my teacher Robert McKee. That guy, he nailed the performance because that's how McKee was. He's a tough Irish motherfucker. Like, so you in between when we when we would have breaks, he was a smoker, so he would go outside and smoke and. I waited for everybody else to ask their questions. And then I walk, when they walked away, I caught him by himself. I go, Mr. McKee, in terms of somebody, um, a protagonist who went through abuse as a child and he stops me right there and he goes, McGowan, the number one cliche of bad writers trying to get sympathy out of a, for a character that the audience, that is flat, that the audience could otherwise never give a shit about is to throw child abuse into the mix. I was abused. He goes, it's not what happens to a character. The story is what they do about it. And that's when, because I kept getting to the point in the book where all the sexual abuse shit came in, and I would always skip over that and break down crying and be like, fucking just stop the writing. It was like this hurdle I had to get over. And that helped me get over it. I was like, this has to be in there. That's It was part of the whole shit. And that, you know, that was the healing process. And then I got into challenging myself physically, immensely. Iron Man, fucking five mile ocean swims, fucking marathons, you you name it. I just, in the gym, I took, I started studying martial arts again. Like whatever the fuck it took just to keep me, when I came back healing off that crack shit and all the rest of it, it was like. You can't live in a void. You have to, and I got into my spirituality a lot too, you know, my chanting, my meditation, my, my worship, you know, service to other humans that are going through the same shit. So that was my path. And I, and I've been doing that. Like I said, now, um, even after I got sober initially, you're living in New York. So it's like, you forget. That's how, that's how disease is. We forget the bad shit. And I started, You know, taking mushrooms, taking ecstasy, going to the nightclubs, all of the bullshit. Never did coke or anything like that again, or dope. Like, smoking a ton of weed, eating brownies, mushrooms. And I'm like, you know what? I'm fucking slowly slipping back into the same shit. I am an addict. I have to admit that. And I admitted that in 2000, right after 9-11, right before 9-11, Uh, and I've been fucking clean and sober now 22 years. And so, and just keeping my days full of positivity. That's what it's all about. So I I mean, in a nutshell, and and the writing helps me a lot. I'm on my sixth book on addiction. My brother died in the middle of writing this fucking book. So it was realer than ever, man. And, uh, losing him was fucked up. You know, It, it, it hurt me. It hurt my mom. It hurt my brother. But uh, I, I even dealt with that by writing, you know, I, I I wrote literally three hours after I got the phone call that he died. I was on my computer putting that emotion into this book. So it's raw, man. It's like and I really feel it's going to help a lot of people, you know, John, so.
1: John, to, to the to the listener who's like hearing your backstory for the first time, it, it almost seems inconceivable that they could hear what you've said up to this point and then see a person across the screen from us who's got an iron man t-shirt on who's done multiple iron men who uh, you know embrace like plant-based living you're vegan for a while you've just gone all on all I in on straight I I, hate right 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 and we and we can get and we can get into that and um and what i'm what i'm taking from this one of the things that's so, so profound is your use of writing to process uh but also like almost the need we hear this we've heard this before like the need to hit rock bottom to like experience rock bottom to then go this is it there's nowhere to go go but up and like how many people hit rock bottom and stay there but you went my
0: guitar guitar player todd died right before the pandemic man he relapsed because of his wife fucking wanted a divorce and he fucking relapsed and did and did fucking dope with fentanyl in it and fucking died like you know, uh, my look at my brother. Look at so many people that don't ever. You know, I was talking to my friend Danny Ilchuk the other night, and we're working on this one man show. He's producing it of me telling the story, my story, like live on stage. You know, and and and, and he said to me the other day, because yo, you want to talk about a motherfucking past? This dude's father was a fucking pimp and a numbers runner. He fucking uh, got his mom pregnant. They fucking dumped him, changed his name. So he didn't even know who the fuck he was. And this lady adopted him and another and his brother, David. And they both were fucking hardcore junkies. Like, like you wouldn't believe. And his brother died after getting out of prison. Danny had a. Uh, a car accident and then like a cyst on his spine that left him almost paralyzed. They didn't even think he'd walk again. But he's like this ultra talented motherfucker, man. Like with putting beats down and fucking he was in bands with um the shining path and roguish armament with members of the bad brains. I mean the dude is like he's a he's one of these uh I forget the word. He's like a fucking genius, man, when it comes to like music and all this different shit. But he had this drug problem and it almost it almost killed him. And he said to me, he goes, yo, man, less than 5% of the motherfuckers that go through the shit that me and you went through make it out the other side. And I was like, wow, man. Like, that's crazy. You know, like, and, and I never forget that. And, and I, I just finished a chapter in my book on addiction about the higher power, whatever that means to anybody. That could be God. That could be uh, meditation. That could be, uh, you know, being out in nature. Whatever it takes for you to get in touch with that inner self that we all, are you know, run from now. Like we have all these external distractions these days in society to take us away from those internal conversations that we need to have. There's apps, there's this, there's that, there's fucking, it's fucking, it's insane. It's all distractions. And in the Vedas, it says those distractions are like the jewels on the head of a serpent. We're attracted. And when they say a serpent in India, they mean like a fucking cobra. Mm -hmm. Like you're attracted and then as soon as you get close, bang, it's the bite of death. So that's what, that's what that is. So, um, it's it, it's not just one thing. It's a thing in combination of it's my it's my diet. It's eating clean. It's respecting the temple. It's my meditation. It's my prayer. I chant Hare Krishna every day. I have a, a little shrine to my teacher back there, Prabhupada. I, I write every day. I'm working on a, a one-man show. I'm working on a, on a comedy. I'm working on the new book. I, I'm constantly, if you don't constantly keep yourself engaged in positive work, the the opposite of that is you're going to be involved in bullshit. And I don't want to be involved in bullshit. And I don't want to be involved with bullshit people. That's why they tell you when you get clean, it's, it's people, places, and things. You got to avoid all that. You know, I never went through the through the 12-step program or never went to a single meeting in the rooms, they call it, or whatever. I just I had to walk past motherfuckers smoking crack because I had federal warrants. I couldn't go to a drug program. I was a wanted man for 15 years, living under assumed identities. I didn't go to a drug program. I fucking dealt with my demons fucking head on. That's how I've always done it. I had to walk by out places in Alphabet City. Motherfuckers that used to sell and get me high would be like, yo, you want to hit this? Like smelling the... When I first got clean, when I would smell that crack smoke, that freebase or whatever, it would just... It would just send these rushes through my fucking system. They say the shit's not physically addictive. That's bullshit. You might not... I even got sick when I got off of it. My body, you know, was addicted to the shit. Maybe not like dope where you get, you know, withdrawal and shit like that from opium, but definitely a level of all that.
1: Uh, So if you... So you you didn't do like 12-step to address addiction, but you found like the spiritual side, like this connection to, you know, the a higher power, like where did that come from? Where did that like understanding that this was part of the way out? Was this well, connection? Was uh, that like an instinct or did you like, uh,
0: have- man, in, in, uh, in 82, I became a monk for two years. I, I, I left music. I left everything. I'm like, I got to take this path up. I became a Hare Krishna monk for two years.
1: I so why, in- uh, why did you pick that? What made because you? Cause pick- I
0: went to, uh, I, I didn't just, Listen, I had a thing against religion because people were beating the shit out of me and abusing me and telling me to go to church and acting like they're Catholics. They're Christians in front of the whole fucking town. They're the Christian Italian family. And then look what they were doing to me. I thought it was bullshit. I hated all that shit. And the bad brains got me a job in a health food store, right? called Prana Foods that was connected to integral yoga. It's Like I said, if you remove one little fucking piece of that Django puzzle, the shit's coming down. So, I get a job in this health food store. I change my diet, plant-based completely, going to fucking see Victoris Kovinskas and Wigmore, the originators of the raw foods fucking diet, Hippocrates Health Center, like learning how to cook, learning to be of service, doing... Uh, bhakti yoga like devotion like okay i'm gonna do service and going to the meetings and going to yoga classes for free because the health food store was connected to the integral yoga institute swami sachin ananda i went to see everybody speak him i saw a fucking um tree chin moi i saw i every book and i wrote about that today i was like a sponge for knowledge i was like I had, we had physical, we had philosophical discussions for hours on end, man, with the bad brains and like uh, sitting around. That was punk rock to us. The real revolution is where's the change? Like it's not political, it's a spiritual change. And then this guy that worked in the health food store was this dude, Vinnie Signorelli, who I love. He was the drummer uh, recently for the unsane. Fucking swans. But back in the day, he was in this band called The Dots with Jimmy Quidd and the, and Jimmy Quinn produced the first Bad Brain single, Six Degrees of Separation. Um so I started talking with Vinny, and then we're having these conversations about you know truth, and I'm like kicking out all this philosophy, and then he just hits me with this shit. I, I I said, we're all God. He goes, How could you be God? You came under illusion. God never comes under illusion. You, you went through all this shit. That's not God. I said, He said, you're a part and parcel of the Supreme, right? But just like a drop of water to the ocean, but you're not God. He used the term chinta beta beta tattva, which means simultaneously one and different. We're of the same qualities of God, but not the same quantity. I said, "So what's God?" He said, "God's a person, man. God is God has form. It's not this white dude with a beard in the fucking clouds, like." And then I was like fascinated by it. And he took me to the Krishna temple, and we get there, and it's early in the morning. And then this song comes on, and this whole ceremony. And then he's like, "That's George Harrison playing uh, bass on this song Govinda," and I'm like, "What? I love the Beatles." He's like, yeah, George was into this, man. He donated the Bhaktivedanta Manor in London. He's like, read this, you know. He's like, you know, he says to me, like, you know, Krishna's gonna show you that this is this is the real deal. God's gonna show you the Shriradakshai Vishnu, Lord in the heart, will direct you. And he goes, You're gonna have an experience, right? So I worked in a health food store, and I was bringing my mom out in Jackson Heights bags of fucking organic groceries, right? So I'm in 74th Street and Roosevelt Avenue. Actually, this was before I went to the temple. I went to. I wanted to go to the temple after that. So I'm I'm in the fucking thing, and I see this monk in like an older monk in like saffron and shaved head, and the dude just look a fold, looked effulgent. and I'm like, what's this guy fucking dealing with? And I go over and I'm like, hey, man, what are you giving out? He's like, these are books on bhakti yoga uh, from India. They're ancient. It's ancient wisdom. And I was like, wow. I said, let me get one, man. He goes, well, what can you give in exchange? I said, why are you trying to sell me something? It's spiritual knowledge. You should give it away. He's like, it's not about the book being free. When you give away things for free, people don't honor and respect it. There's no value to it. So he said, I said, well, I don't have any money, and I didn't, and he goes, well, how about you give me a bottle of juice, and I'll give you a book in exchange, and I can offer this juice to Krishna, and I'll share it with the other devotees out here, and, uh, and we'll call it even. I said, bet, <laughs> and it was one of the Krishna books, and I was like, my dude was just telling me about this, like. And then I went back. I'm like, yo, you're not going to believe this. And I held up the book. He's like, ah, it happens to everybody. And then I said, take me to the temple. And then I started studying. I started chanting. Uh, it You know, back then it was, these people were so amazing that it's like, it's just like punk rock. I wanted to be around those people. That was my tribe. And then I when I was going to the temple and seeing all these people and talking philosophy and just the way they were so giving and everything, I was like, wow, this is my tribe. And then this they had this magazine back to Godhead. And on the cover of it was this sailboat with these, and the sails had a big Hare Krishna on it with a lotus. And they had gotten this boat donated of 65-foot teakwood on the Hawaiian Islands, and they were like, we need somebody that has uh, skills, navigating, deck work, all that shit. I was like, bingo. That's what I do. <laughs> you know, Navy is not just a job. It's an adventure. <laughs> it's called dovetailing, though. Whatever propensity we have, we should utilize that in God's service. That's what. So I called them up. I'm like, hey, man, I'm your guy. Like, I'm a, I am was a boatswain. I know tying knots. I know seamanship. I could do mow boards. That was before GPS. You had to navigate on a fucking thing where you're going. He says, All right, come out. Come out. Gonna be a monk. I'm sitting there having breakfast the next day. I did work on the boat like the day I got there. It was it was out in Kaneohe Bay on the on Oahu. And I see this devotee got beat up. And I'm like, yo, what the fuck? Like. He's like, yeah, you know, the Hawaiians, like, we give out books down on Kalakaua Avenue, and they come and fucking punch the devotees out and take their money. I was like, well, that's fucked up. I'm like, let me go down there tomorrow and make sure nothing happens. Well, guess what? The first motherfucking day, I had to bang out a fucking huge dude, and I got locked up by the cops. (laughs) But there was witnesses, so they let me go. But. Then I started going down there and giving out books to people and meeting people and all that. And that became my thing. I actually was one of the biggest book distributors in Hawaii. And then I went back to New York and, you know, that's how I got into it. And I, uh, the, the thing was, like, I, I saw a lot of uh, negative things go down in the movement. When people get in power in religious organizations, they abuse it. And I won't get into the details of that. I talk about it in my book. But part of it involved abusing children. And when you do that, it's like I said, I don't give a fuck what any adult does now. When you start directing that shit at kids, we're going to have a fucking problem. Yeah. That's, I'm like, I don't give a fuck straight, gay, whatever. Tra- tra- bi- I don't give a fuck. You come at kids, I see it, it's a problem. Because that's been what me and my brothers had to go through, I'm like, I know what that could do to a child for the rest of their fucking life. You're just getting your fucking, your, your rocks off. You're ruining a fucking child. So that's what made me snap on that whole shit. And then I did investigations and all of this shit was going on, man. murders and I just was like, how like they poisoned Prabhupada. The, fuck, the the person who came and saved their lives, they gave him arsenic and cadmium, like just evil. Power and corrupts, I've right? been fighting against, yeah, ultimate power corrupts ultimately. And, mm-hmm. and, and I've been fighting against them ever since, like, and, and and sticking with the value. See, I never lost my faith because I know what it did for me. Some people, with they had that experience, would be like, fuck this. I never said that. I knew what Prabhupada brought. The Bhagavad Gita, Science of Self-Realization, all of these books, when you read them, you're like, this is about, this is teaching about the science of God. This man was, this man was so surrendered. He slept on the floor, Prabhupada, when he, everybody loved Prabhupada. He was so humble. He, took, he came from India at 70 years old with $7 and a case of books. Imagine coming to New York City with that because his guru in India said, go save people in the West. No bank accounts, no possessions, no nothing. He went out and, 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 and chanted in Tompkins Square Park and invited people back to the temple, cooked for them, served them, cleaned up before he took a, a, a grain of rice, slept on the floor. Now you're going to come to me and you want, you're you're fucking got millions of dollars in bank accounts and you're doing all this shit. Nah, man. Acharya means one who led by example. And that's what Prabhupada was. And that's why I never lost my faith in the process. And I warn people, because Prabhupada said, if someone is your friend and a thief comes in the room, you tell Your friend to watch their valuables. What's more valuable than your spiritual life? Mm -hmm. Right. So you have to warn people against the charlatans that are out there in any religion. It doesn't matter what it is. So, yeah, you've got to
1: see, you have to see past the trappings and just look at the values, isn't it? And you you, you didn't lose sight of that.
0: Well, you know, it's a science. And like science, you have like, unlike. (laughs) The science that <laughs> mm-hmm. we heard so much about that was bullshit. We won't, we won't go there, but real science is you have a formula, you apply it, you get a result yeah. to the degree you apply their formula to that degree. you get the result, right? If you go fucking changing the formula, if it says two plus two equals four and you put two, you know, three plus two and I want five, that's going to alter, you know, the, the result. So when Prabhupada says this is what you need to do and this will be the result, you do it yeah. and you get the result. And the result for me was all of this shit that I had suppressed in my life started. It was like that there's a saying, Chetodarpina marginum. And it means that when you cleanse the mirror of the mind, it's like we're standing in front of a, a, a dusty mirror. And then when you cleanse the mirror of the mind, it's like you get to see who we really are. And, you know, that's why I stuck with the process. And and, and uh, even to this day, man, I chant, I read. And it's part of, you know, it's kind of like. One of the inherent qualities of the soul, and I wrote that today, is service. It's about that search for knowledge and spirituality and the search for the absolute truth. It's inherent in us. So when we dull that by taking intoxications or whatever, we're, we're living a lie. We're trying to fucking delude ourselves away from the pertinent questions in life. Who am I? Where am I going? Where am I from? Otherwise, we're just polished animals, eating, sleeping, mating, and defending, right? Human life means... We should search for higher consciousness and knowledge. And if we don't do that, we're no better than polished animals. And I wrote, yeah, we may, uh, you know, eat, you know, sumptuous feasts and make a whole big shit show about it. But when our belly is full, it's the same feeling that the pig standing in its own shit eating out of a trough gets. The belly's full. It's the same thing. So what separates us from the animals? We have higher consciousness to try to understand what the goal of life, what's the meaning of our life? And if we don't do that, then because we're living in this illusory uh, energy, the Maya, the external energy, as opposed to the internal energy, then we try to deal with everything by getting fucked up. And getting fucked up is a way to help you forget. That's what it, that's what it was for me. Even It, it, it made me forget my, try to make me forget my past. But you just keep spiraling downward into the abyss, You're not gonna get anything good out of a fucking out of your addiction. That's my message to a lot of the people because I've spoken all over the world. I've gone to rehabs. I would be out on tour and then like somebody would hit me up. Hey, I work at a rehab in Canada. Can you come speak to the kids? Motherfucking right. I would and I would do it for free because that's part of my service in life is to be of service. So you know, I I I would I would speak at prisons. I wasn't getting paid. I would go to fucking prisons and, and speak to people and be like, I would hold up my passport and go, I'm exactly 30 years ago. I I was sitting right where you are right now. Now look, look at all the places I've been in this world. Look at the books I've written, the fucking tours I've done, the records, all this other shit. It's because I finally said, Hey man, I'm going to go down this other path in life. I'm going to check this other shit. This, I know what this path brought me. And I know what it's going to bring me because My friends used to tell me on the streets, and a lot of them led that path and got murdered or died or whatever. They're like, there's only two places you're going living this. That's in in the ground or in a fucking cell for the rest of your life. Or maybe if you're lucky, you'll have an addiction and that'll be your whole fucking life. I didn't want that anymore. So we have to make the decisions. It's the choices we make under pressure. That's true character, like I said. So what are we going to do? Here we are. What are we going to do now? Are we going to fucking keep deluding ourselves or are we going to fucking turn the lens inside? We're so busy worrying what everybody else is doing. What's this? Oh, this person or this politician. None of that shit matters. You don't have control over any of that. What you have control over is what you do. And that's really, to me, that's every day waking up. The first thing I do is touch my head to the floor and say mantras to, to Krishna you know, and my own Krista Krishnubadaya, and, and my teacher, I thank them for another day of life to get after it, especially I see how fragile life is, look at all the death I've had happen around me, I'm like, shit could be over in a minute, man, you could walk out that fucking door and bango, that's it, you know, who knows when, when death will come, but it will come, and How we live our life prepares us for that moment. That's the ultimate test. These are like the little quizzes. What do I do in this situation? That's why Prabhupada said at the time of death, everything you believe in will be tested ultimately. So how do you live your life? You you live your life to prepare yourself for that moment of death. Am I going to have my consciousness uh, absorbed in higher things or am I going to be flipping out? Oh, my God. You know, my family, my this, my that, my bank account. All these people now, you may be Bill Gates, you may be any one of these people with billions of dollars. My friend who came from the fucking streets and he died, he relapsed, fell down the stairs and died, Kevin. uh, My boy, uh, Kevin. And he said, there ain't no fucking hearse racks and checkbooks on top of a fucking limo, bro. You ain't taking nothing with you when you go, except what's in your heart, your consciousness. In the Bhagavad Gita, it says whatever state of consciousness, one remembers at the time of death to that state they will attain in the future. So that's the whole thing in life. So live your life. That's what I try to live my life that way. And mainly, just like Prabhupada, he was of service. He didn't have to come from India at 70 years old to spread the knowledge and save people's lives. Like he he literally saved my life. And you know, I'll, I'll just say this one last thing. Uh, HR was part of that, you know, part of that process to singer for the Bad brains. And right before the pandemic, I think it was 2019, we played this big outdoor festival in Providence with HR, Cro-Mags. So I come up, and I'm in the parking lot, and this dude comes up. He's like, hey, man, your books, man, fucking saved my life. I was an addict. I was all this shit. I was suicidal. I said, you see that dude sitting in that car over there? He goes, yeah, HR. I said, that's the candle that lit 10,000 other candles. You see what I'm saying? Because he educated me initially, and then I went on my search. And then I gave people the knowledge and they gave people the knowledge and other people. So ultimately it comes down to not even 10,000. It could be millions at this point. The knowledge that the Cro-Mags put out there and 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 getting the, you know, we we I based all the, even the first album, Age of Quarrel. That came from the Vedas of India. You know, Kali Yuga, The Iron Age of Quarrel and Hypocrisy. All the songs were either about street or consciousness and it's just been ongoing, man. I just did another record uh, last year called souls with the, with blood clot. So, you know, just keep it going.
1: It's a beautiful juxtaposition. The genre, you know, the genre, the like the hardcore punk genre and the, you know, the music, the edge, the, the loudness, the fastness that, that is that genre. But you're also talking about spirituality. That's what makes it more
0: potent. That's why Bad Brains were more potent than anything. Agreed. You know, other bands may have had energy, Jello, Biafra, all these bands, but it was based on politics, on bullshit. The power that the Bad Brains exuded off the fucking stage was like, your fucking hair stood on end because you knew what those lyrics meant. I knew where those lyrics were coming from. I spent so much time with HR and the Bad Brains. I knew what he was about. He was the real revolutionary. Because it's not about, Prabhupada even said it. You're never going to make the material world. It's a prison. You're never going to make it this comfortable place. And you shouldn't want to. You need to raise your consciousness up out of this fucking prison. Go beyond the iron bars. That's why I did I, I, I did an article and, and it said, iron bars to iron man. My chanting and my spirituality was part of that process. Even when I do Ironmans, I'm chanting all the time. I'm like, I'm in another fucking zone, dude. Like, people don't even know. I'm like, yo, when you're suffering and pushing, I did races with broken bones and fucking triple hernias. And, like, you're not doing that shit unless you're on some out-of-space fucking vibes, dude. Yeah. That's what it takes. It but. Is. I never was into that. And even back in the day, I got criticized for my spiritual beliefs. You got to think about it. I'm in punk. I was going to punk shows in 77. Everybody was a fucking junkie doing drugs. I was too. And then hardcore. And even in the beginning of hardcore, you know, I was around Henry Rollins and Ian MacKay, straight edge and all that shit. I was fucking with with the dudes in DC. I mean, they liked me. They was my friend, but I got fucked up. I was doing quaaludes and drinking and coke and dust and whatever. It wasn't until I got the spiritual seed planted that I was like, I need to stop this, you know? But that's why even the cro like, I would be out on tour, meditating two hours a day, all day, fucking doing whatever, training for Ironmans. By the time I hit the fucking stage... It was clean and sober, no drugs, no nothing. Like it was a fucking shot of energy. Like, like that's what it was about. We were vibrating on a higher level. Oh man, sorry, I got fucked up last night. I, 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 I can't do. You know, sorry, the performance sucks. I never, I never did that. I never did that. Not even once did I ever make an excuse because I got fucked up when I walked away from the music is when I got into all the trouble.
2: John, are you, are you still in touch with HR?
0: Yeah, kind of a little bit here and there, you know, like he calls me every now and then leaves me a message. Like he's got mental health issues. So it's hard for me to communicate on uh, things, but. Yeah. I have a massive amount of respect for him, for doc, for Daryl, for Earl, for J.W. who was the guy that put me on all the Raw Foods and all that shit. Their sound man who produced that first the Raw Sessions cassette. He was the guitar player for Blood He was the sound man. Like, that dude was like a fucking sadhu, man. Like, renounced. He was like a shivite, you know? In India, the guys with the dreadlocks, white guys that smoke all the weed and but he ate raw foods and he educated me on that he gave me books he was like my transcendental librarian he would <laughs> give me Gochief the way i finished that then he'd give me Ram Das so whatever the fuck be here now like i just kept getting all the books he told me oh shri chin moys i went with him to see shri chin moy in queens so the people we associate with is that we take on the qualities of those people right Prabhupada said, if you hang out with thieves and rogues and drug addicts and trinkets, you're going to be, that's what you'll become. I did it. I, I hung out with drug addicts. I became a drug addict. I hung out with spiritually minded people vibrating on a higher level. And, and I, you know, I, I took on those qualities, but yeah, I mean, you know, I talked to doc Moore, the guitar player. Yeah. Like, Quite often, actually, we'll we'll, we'll FaceTime each other. And he had a medical incident and had a bad stroke. And um, so it's important that he lost a lot of his memory. So it was like, I I call him up and he gets a notebook. And I'm like, Doc, remember when AB, when we played Tampa, Miss Luckies, and after the third day, they robbed us? and didn't pay us, and then we had no money, and the other roadie tried to take the fucking keys and was going to split the tour because he was flipping out, and they called me squids because they met me when I was in the Navy, and and Doc goes, squids, you got to go handle that. So I went over and yoked the dude up and took the van keys, like, you know, but (laughs) just fucking great times that you could never, you know, Everything happens for a reason, man. It all led to even us being here today. So, there,
2: Yeah, there it is. I, your life, as you tell your story, it almost seems like a microcosm for the culture at large. It's like we've, we're have we going through some fucking dark shit. The Age of Deception, you just called it the Age of Quarrel, like the Kali Yuga. And then this ascension into a higher place, into a more heart-centered, uh, more... High vibration place. Do you, do you sense that we're on the the path? Absolutely.
0: Well, this is this is we're, Kali Yuga goes on for two hundred and forty seven thousand years. We're only five thousand years into that. It's <laughs> right. a ten thousand year period of enlightenment, the Age of Aquarius, all this, the Golden Age. Yeah. We're we're just now coming into that. So the modern civilization of what everybody we've come to like a fucking the precipice of like destroying ourselves. Yeah. So it's like the only way to go from here is up. We've, you know, it's, I see it as there is a great awakening happening now with people, you know, and there, and at the same time, the evil forces sense that and they're doubling down And trying to turn everybody against each other and all of this bullshit, these politics. One politician's better. It's either Trump or Biden. That's the best you could do in this country? That's the best this country has to offer is those fucking two jokers? Like, give me a fucking break. Or this person's this or that. Or like, there's so many... Things that are out there that can divide us. I'm looking for the things that can bring people together. And to me, it's the process of self-realization. Because you know how you end it all? Aham brahmasmi. What is that? That's the first teaching of spiritual life. You're not the body. We. You're not a man. You're not a woman. You're not this. You're not that. You're not any of this shit. You're a spirit soul. When we... That's why when I lived as a monk, we never had a single racial fucking incident, not one, because everybody was vibrating on that higher consciousness. I didn't see dudes as black. I knew there was guys that were gay that were dealing with that, that, you know, controlled their senses and became monks. I can't hate on somebody because that's the way they were born. You're going to hate on me because I was born in a white body all this critical race bullshit they're teaching children. It's fucking bullshit. It's bullshit. It's all meant to divide. And that's their philosophy is divide and conquer. They stay in power the more we fight each other. But let's make the world one big ashram. How about that? Make the world one big fucking center where higher consciousness is in the middle. Everything feeds from that out, right? Right? All this bullshit goes away then. I'm this, I'm that. I have 27 and a half fucking pronouns. You misgendered me. How about I I didn't misgender you. How about I tell you that you're a spirit soul part and parcel of Krishna? That's that's the solution to it all. And Prabhupada said there will be a great awakening of consciousness and we see it ha- I've seen it happening in my life. We may have to go through some dark periods to get there. But just like they say, it's always the darkest before the dawn, right? Yeah. So I feel we are we are coming to that dark. People want answers. They're tired of the fucking scams, the, po- the political scams, the religious scams. Everybody's fucking scamming and exploiting other people, exploiting the natural resources. Everybody that went to Davos telling us how we're going to be living Flew in fucking thousand private jets and have mansions. I just posted yesterday, all the mansions of Obama and, and, and Kerry and all these people, not one single fucking solar panel in huge <laughs> fucking, the carbon footprint of that fucking mansion could light a fucking city.
1: Yeah,
0: And they're going to, you know, they're hypocrites. That's the other thing. It's the age of quarrel and hypocrisy. They told us to lock down. They didn't let us see our loved ones. They went and did whatever the fuck they wanted to do. They had parties. They, you know, Nancy Pelosi went and got her hair done. Cuomo was going to restaurants, not wearing masks. It's they're creating a surf society. And the more we feed into the material machine, the more we become susceptible. When we break from that and we deal with the spiritual level, they can't fuck with us. That's the thing they hate. That's the thing they fear the most is the mass awakening of consciousness. That's what they fear. They don't fear you picking up a weapon. All these people. I got guns. Big fucking deal. They got tanks. (laughs) What are you going to do? But you know what? When you say I don't want any part of this civilization, I want no part of this hate. I'm going to vibrate on a platform of love
2: for
0: one another. I'm going to go out and feed the homeless. I'm down here now. We're talking about growing our own organic food, building an ashram for people to come that want to live off naturally off the land and have like just a beautiful mode of goodness life free of all these problems of the Kali Yuga. Come on down. That's what it's all. I built a temple in New York and maintained it for 10 years. I spent $400,000 of my own money doing it over the 10-year period built it with my own two hands got people to donate their their um their trades electricians plumbers all this shit fucking and and the place my mom always said when I first opened it up I had all this money saved and I was like I'm going to get a house right whatever and my mom was like great great you know um and then the opportunity came to open the temple and I said you know what this is the more important thing and that's what I spent the money on. And she couldn't. She's like, I can't believe you. You You have nothing. I said, Ma, it's not. I don't have nothing. I said, come for the Sunday feast. And she came to the Sunday feast that we had. And she saw how everybody was helped. And people were like, this place saved my life. Like, I, I've been to prison. I've been a drug addict. I was abused, all this shit. And everybody was telling my mother the stories of how this place saved them. And my mother said to me afterwards, she goes, I will never say that to you again. Now I know why you opened up this center. I said, Ma, this saved my life. You know what a mess I was. This was the thing that saved me. If it could save me, it could save fucking anybody. Because I was worse than anybody. So, you know, that's the the life that I feel, that's the answer to everything. Because everybody says, what's the answer? The answer isn't out there. The answer is in here. The answer, and that's not corny, like fucking religious bullshit. That's that's real deal shit. The ones who say that shit, and I wrote that because I just finished a chapter about the higher power. I'm closing in on finishing the book. But I'm like, the people who say believing in God and a higher power is corny shit, never been tested in life. You know who never said that? The motherfuckers that I know that went through the real shit in life that fucking face death on a daily basis been through fucking tragedy unbelievable tragedy if you're not ever tested don't talk no shit to me you know because when you when your time comes for you to be tested we'll see who you are then but you live you live a sheltered life and then you you know you're going to come fucking lecture me don't lecture me let's put you under some adversity and see how you deal with it Maybe they are strong enough. More than likely, as I see, they're going to go out and fuck, get fucked up to deal with their problems. That's what I did when I was a weak person and denying my path. But most will turn to a higher power. And like I said, that could mean anything. That, that could mean going out and seeing God in nature. All the fruits, vegetables, flowers, animals, birds, bees. Like, that took a... Consciousness, a divine consciousness to create all of that. Scientists can't even create a single grain, a single grain of rice out of thin air in a laboratory. They keep saying they're gonna solve death. That's never fucking coming. It's, It's never coming. They they can create nothing. The only thing they can do is destroy. Prabhupada said they have so many ways to destroy and murder. But what can they what life can they bring? everything. That's why he wrote a book. Life comes from life. There's an intelligent design, intelligent consciousness. We don't see one example in the material world of a single building, road, tunnel, anything, car, nothing, computer being built without an intelligent form behind creating that. But yet we think the universe and all these planets are being maintained by chance. Come on, man. If you go to court, what do they call that? A propounderance of the fucking evidence. You don't have to have the gun. You could just point out all the other shit. Guilty <laughs> motherfucker, bang. Right. So it's the same shit. I'm like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. And you figure it out by surrendering to the process. That's the whole thing. I went into it challenging. I wanted to tear apart the philosophy. I looked for the loophole. I would fucking leave the temple and go back right in shit. All right, I'm going to get them on this one next day. Explained it perfectly. Left no stones unturned. That's why I'm, here goes the bear. There's, bear. There's the bear. Hey, bear. <laughs> the rock star.
2: Welcome to the podcast, bear.
0: Podcast, bear, you're on the podcast.
2: <laughs> it's an honor.
0: <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's just about being, it, it's about being positive. And 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 there's a a chapter in here in the science of self-realization, which is a great book. It's called "Spiritual Solutions to Material Problems." Mm. Throwing gasoline on a fire doesn't solve the, you know, throwing water on the fire solves the problem of the fire, you know. So we need spiritual solutions to everything that's going on. And I really do feel now people are starting to figure that out. Yeah, it's just like. I was in New York City for 9-11. I did an intervention on my brother the day before, Frank, and was sending him to a rehab in St. Thomas. I couldn't get him out for a month. I had to deal with him reliving all the pain and us crying, man. He was detoxing, you know. But it got very spiritual in New York after that. Everybody was going to church. Everybody was going to the temples. The yoga centers were full. Everybody was kind to each other for about a week. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then it went right back to the same shit.
2: Yeah. I like the phrase you used, the science of God, uh, because often those two words are at odds with each other in our materialistic culture. But you're right. What is science? But it's putting things to the test. It's using a control. It's it's using tried and true techniques to affect a predictable outcome, and that's exactly what you've sort of devoted your life to—is the science of God.
0: Right. It's the same thing with diet. I use my body as a laboratory. When I get Mama loops coming online, oh, you can't. I'm like motherfucker. I've been doing this for forty two fucking years. Plant based diet. Don't don't fucking lecture me. Yeah. Like I like you use your body as a laboratory. And that meant, like, years ago, I used to eat all the fake meat and all that shit. I don't do that anymore because it it doesn't, it's like you start to eliminate the things that you don't need. And in spiritual life, those are called anarchists. Those are the unwanted things. Those are the things in life that don't take us to a better place. That's the drug addiction, the alcoholism, the playing the victim. Like, all the shit that I wrote about in my other book, uh, the PMA, Oh. This book, The PMA Effect, right? Play the victim. Oh, we're all victims. Feel sorry for me. You know what that does? That tries to give you a pass to not fix your shit. Yeah. It's all about turning the fucking lens in, man. What am I doing? Stop worrying about, you know, there's this one comedian. I won't even mention his name, but I go way back with him. I'm going to say it. Fuck it. Michael Michael Rappaport. His whole shit is like, fucking Trump. Like, dude, what is that doing for you? What? Who gives a fuck? Trump's a piece of shit. They all are. Every fucking politician. What is that? How is that bettering your life? Mm-hmm. Taking fucking joy in, the, in, in like some other bullshit. That's not helping you, dude. Turn the fucking lens inside. What's inside Michael Rappaport? What's inside me? What's inside all these other people? See, when we always, Prabhupada said it, it's like being in the shower and you're pointing the finger at everybody else going, oh, look how fucking dirty you are, but you're filthy. It's like, turn the fucking camera inside, man. Fix your shit. And that's what I did. When it said in the temple, you come in the temple, you get up. I was up by 3 a.m. sometimes. Me, I, I was so hardcore. I got up at 2 a.m. I went to bed at 8 I was up by two, I meditated for two hours, then went to the whole program, went to the class, went to all the ceremonies, the same, that, that greeting of the deities thing where they were playing the George Harrison song, and then you go to the class, and then you go out and you chant more, and then you, and, on the streets, or you go and distribute books, and you serve others. What's the process? The burning fire of material existence, the agitation, all the pain, all the fucking, everything just dissipates. You applied that formula, Prabhupada said, 16 rounds and four regular principles. No intoxication, no eating of meat, fish, eggs, and the rest. No illicit sex and no gambling. Gambling destroys truthfulness. The four pillars of spiritual life are destroyed by the four principles of sinful life. And that's why you don't go out and gamble and do all this shit. Every gambler I knew... A gambler married my mom and stole everything from her. When my mom, I wrote about it in my book. When she got a divorce, he was an alcoholic and went to AA, sure. But then he became a fucking gambling fucking maniac and gambled the house away without her knowing it. Took out fucking uh, second mortgages and everything. She was homeless when she fucking divorced him. I had to pay for her fucking apartment and furniture. The bank took everything. So, and the illicit sex, look at all the problems that come from that. The unwanted progeny, the disease, all this shit.
2: Well, how about the, the fucking stock market? The isn't choice. isn't the, the stock market is just a big old gambling ring? It's
0: gambling. It, it's a fucking the, Ponzi scheme, dude. The motherfucker, like spiritual life, these fake fucking religions are a Ponzi scheme. What do they do? They exploit everybody underneath the underlings, hoping that then when they move up, in Krishna consciousness, when they become the guru, then they could have the bank accounts and sit on their ass and have people wash their feet and get worshipped and and have fucking millions of dollars and you know fame, adoration, and distinction. I don't want any of that. I want to remain a servant. Prabhupada said we should remain the servant of the servant of the servant. I want to serve those who are serving the servant. That's uh, that's the proper that's the proper consciousness. You never get puffed up. You never get this big fucking false ego. Like, look at musicians and all these motherfuckers that are famous. Like, I can't even be around them. It's just like, who the fuck wants to be around you? I would rather be around, like, some, you know, person who doesn't even have money that at least has a good nature and a good heart. Yeah. And and, and are good people. You know, that's, that's who I'm gravitating toward, uh, you know, toward these days. And, uh, but yeah, like you said, man, it is a science. And and if you apply it strictly, then you're going to get the result. And what is the greatest result of all of that? You become detached from material life.
1: John, I want to lean in on the, di- on the, on the, on the diet piece because Mike and I, but Mike and I, on this like on this podcast as hosts and a uh, co-hosts, and also in our our lives, are this like health odyssey. Diet and what we eat has been it, it's been an evolution. And a year ago, I was like carnivore. I'd I'd been you know discovered carnivore. I tried it. I was like, this feels great. You know, I'm just gonna do meat. It all sort of made sense. Uh, and something happened this past summer, and it really caused me to question that from the like material physical perspective. And then we start getting exposed to conversations like this with people like you. And I've seen it in others where they're questioning meat from a number of standpoints. And the one, one of them that most intrigues me is the spiritual one. And I'd really oh, no, love for you. Can you, can you, can you talk about that connection between what we're eating and that and this sort of like uh, honoring of this of the spirit soul?
0: Yeah. Um, well, see that was the whole thing to me was when HR Rastafari means prince of peace, right? So HR said and I was I was plant-based before I even met the Krishnas. Like, you know, um so HR said to me, "How can you expect to live in peace in this world and what we do to the animals, we murder them brutally in slaughterhouses and like Frederick Weissman did a movie called Meat. Frederick Weissman was not vegetarian or anything. But basically, he did this movie, and I saw it in 81. And the movie opens up with a horse in a field, and it's cold out, and the breath is coming out of his nostrils. And then the camera pulls back. There's a cowboy on that horse. Then it pulls back more. There's other cowboys on horses. They're loading cows into a truck. That truck goes to the slaughterhouse. The animal gets loaded down a chute. It watches the other animal in front of it be murdered and starts going crazy trying to get away. And then everything they do to that animal. And I was like, I don't want no fucking part of that. And I told that when I was on Joe Rogan, I said, I grew up in violence. I saw people be hacked to death in front of me. I saw people shot. I saw all kinds of violence, the violent nature of people that you couldn't even fucking imagine a human could do that to another human. What was done to me? I'm like, I don't want no part of this violent fucking world. And I always said the first change in my consciousness was when I got off all the meat. Something just, something just like clicked. Like there was this huge weight that came off of, my shoulders. I never stopped being aggressive. I was still I fucking lay you out on the street like it was never like I became a a vegan pussy <laughs> fucking I didn't we didn't even have that word back then. Nobody said vegan. we called it ital Jamaican ital ital is vital Lotal is fatal, right? You don't eat the Babylon food, man. The fuckery them serve you, man. It made for one thing and one thing only to cause disease. And them pharmaceutical companies come in right behind it and giving you the drugs. And them companies is owned by them other companies, Rasta. So you see, I got the educate, I got the overstanding, not the understanding. That's what Rasta say. They taught me first. I learned about the herbs, wood root tonic, and all the shit. The Rastas taught me first. But then, like I said, I used it as a laboratory. I stopped all the meat, the fish, the eggs, the da- even the dairy. I didn't eat that. I ate a lot of raw foods and shit. So you could argue to the fuck son comes home about the nutrition. Here's the thing. There's no long-term studies about fucking what this carnivore diet could eat is going to do to somebody in 50 years. There's the China study that proves that when you eat a clean, organic, plant-based diet—the cancer rates go down, and all the other shit. By uh, co- uh, uh, um, what the fuck is his name that wrote that book? Fucking, uh, I'm just having an old man moment. The, the, um, the China study, which uh, there's, you know, there's all these studies that exist. You know, the Blue Zones—who lives the longest on the planet? People who primarily ate. A fucking plant-based diet had, they worked hard, they had belief in a higher power, right? So all those things encompass to create a life that you live longer, right? So everyone brings up the carnivore diet and the caveman diet. They motherfuckers live to like 30, 40 years old. Like, <laughs> give me a fucking break, dude. Like... And like I said, there is no long-term studies about the effects of this shit. I just don't want to be involved with that industry. And then, you know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not uh an advocate of pushing this whole, it's climate change, the planet. They've been saying that for fucking ever. Right. The planet's gonna be over in 10 years, making money off of it. Yep. Yeah. There's no denying we're destroying the environment. That's what I always say. I don't say climate change, none of this bullshit. I say we are destroying the environment. We're tearing down the rainforest in Brazil to graze cattle. We're fucking doing all this shit. Look at the CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, 100,000 pigs fucking leaking sewage into fucking estuaries and fucking you know, rivers and everything, like these, these lagoons of sewage. Look at fucking um, Cowspiracy. Watch the movies. What the hell? Forks over knives. Get some education. Get some education. I don't want any part of this animal being confined its entire life. And then, or, or yes, our our cow just touched grass its whole life. It had such a wonderful life until I slit its fucking throat. You know? So to me, I just, I don't want any part of that. Yeah, Like I, I, and I'm living proof that, Hey, you could do this and be healthy. So why contribute to the suffering of others? Everybody contributed to, the, to my suffering, right? Look at look at all the shit. I didn't have control over that as a kid. Shit was done to me that I had no control over. But when I was in a position of controlling my destiny, I had to make the right choices for myself. And part of my choice to that whole thing was plant-based. And the bad Brains and myself and the others were doing this shit before anybody. I was doing this shit before anybody, before it came fucking trendy. I don't care about the trends. You know, I would never eat a fucking impossible burger or any of this fucking shit. You know, GMO, Bill Gates, mystery meat fucking like I just saw a fucking thing on what's in that. I would never eat that. I don't I don't even fuck with Beyond Meat. That's non GMO or any of this shit anymore because I use my body as a laboratory. I noticed that when I ate it, I got inflammation. I had headaches the next day. My intestines, all this shit. I'm like, why do I need that? Let me just eat a whole food, organic plant-based diet from foods in their original source as much as possible. I mean, the most I'll do is organic soy, uh, tofu or tempeh. And that's just pressed soybeans that have been, uh, you know, boiled down. That's about it. I don't fuck with any of the other shit. And my girl's a nutritionist. So she's always like my, my fastest Ironman time and the leanest I got was when I went to Cozumel and, uh, she got me down to like 160. I was, if you've seen a fucking picture of it, I was like fucking shredded. Even now, I'm like, I do intermittent fasting. I, I, you know, so I, I, even though like uh, I'm not at the peak of my, let's get this guy out of here. Get
1: out. Yeah. Bye there. Oh,
0: bye there. You know, even though I'm uh, haven't stepped into the, like, Complete heaviness, insanity of my cycle of training for these Ironmans I got coming up. I, I don't put on the weight that I used to before. I don't have that extra seven pounds in the winter time that I got to get rid of. Maybe it's like two or three, you know. And I'm in the gym constantly. It, it, it's it's you know I don't I don't I don't I don't I don't, uh, I don't live to eat. I eat to live. I eat a certain way that's giving me the energy and the power I need to to get through the day. You know, these people that talk all this shit, I'm like, y'all motherfuckers ain't Cameron Haynes, dude. You want to come and fucking train with me? We'll do a fucking 12-hour... Fucking Iron Man, and then get in the ring or whatever the fuck. I wouldn't say that to Cameron Haynes or Goggins because <laughs> they kicked the shit out of me. You just while, yeah you while you, chewing you, on a fucking piece of chicken. <laughs> you, know? you just ran
1: into yeah, Goggins, did you? They just shot. <laughs> you just ran into Goggins, didn't you?
0: That was a while back. That was a while back. I, so I ran into him a couple of times, and I was watching him do the chin up world record at Rockefeller Center. Yeah. My buddy served under him. My buddy was a frogman. AJ James, God bless you. I love you. Uh bad motherfucker. He was in the movie Act of Valor, but he he told me stories about Goggins and he's like, "Dude, he's fucking inhuman."
1: Yeah. Inhuman. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, I that's that's what I love about Goggins and folks like yourself is like, yeah, you could say he's inhuman, but he's not. He's human. Like whatever yeah. he can do, whatever he can do, whatever you can do, the rest of us can do. You do do want to do Iron Man?
0: anybody anybody could do it if you apply yourself yeah if you apply yourself you could do an iron man that's why i tell people they say i can never do an iron man i said that's you know what i say did you ever try right did you ever apply yourself i can never i can't get free of drugs did you ever fucking try i can't stop drinking did you ever fucking really try However much you invest into something is what you're going to get out of it. And I, I have a chapter in here called Be All In. I'm like, you better be all fucking in on your shit, dude. Because if you're not, the universe, God knows exactly where you are lacking. And that's where the screws are going to get tightened.
1: That's one of my questions, you know, that's one of the questions I had, like in your experience as a coach, a motivational speaker, an athlete, like what do you see is holding most people back from achieving their goals?
0: Self-defeat, self-defeat. They shoot themselves in the foot before they even fucking start. And they're not disciplined. This, I, I coach in discipline, you know, that's my thing. I'm like, I coach in discipline. I have a 10 step discipline process, which is going in the back of this addiction book. This is what this is what it's all about. It's about staying disciplined. Discipline creates habits. Habits create routines. The routines become who we are. That works in the negative too. Why do you think they call it a drug habit? I got a bundle a day habit. It's the same shit. Your habit's going to cause your routines. You're going to go out. You're going to fucking hustle. You're going to steal. You're going to rob to get your money to get drugs. It's the same thing. I'm choosing to have my discipline it it's it takes a disciplined life to be a junkie people think you don't have to you do have to be fucking disciplined because you know what if you don't get high for a day guess what happens you start getting sick
1: yeah yeah
0: and i said if you if a junkie took the same amount of motivation that it, it took him to get that 100 or 200,000 a day to shoot that shit in their arm or get whatever they would be fucking running Fortune 500 companies if they flipped that same determination and discipline to something positive. So stay disciplined. Stay disciplined in your life every day. And, and that comes down to time management. How are you spending your day? Who are you spending your day with? Writing down my shit. I got a list every fucking day of the shit that I got to get done. I, I make a list the night before. I watched Joe Rogan. He said he does it on Sundays. That's good too. I suggest doing a self-assessment on Sunday. What did I do during the whole fucking week? How could I have bettered every single fucking thing I did? People think journaling is fucking weak. It's oh, that's girl shit. My buddy who was a team leader, in in, in the special forces, kept a journal. Yeah. When you're going out and men and you're running a fucking you're a, you're a squad leader, you have all these people under your fucking supervision. You've, you've gone out with their families and their kids. You got to go knock on that door if they get killed. Think about that. So there's no fucking way this dude is not putting himself under the fucking microscope. You know? Yep. And that takes self-assessment. But that's the whole thing I say is stay disciplined because discipline will bring all of the good shit into your life. And undisciplined, an undisciplined mind. It's the same thing in yoga when I was a monk. It was the most disciplined life ever, austere, austere. And what does austerity mean? It means willingly undertaking a hardship to achieve a higher result. That's the meaning of austerity. So that's what it's all about. That's why I get up, I say my mantras, I read my books, I write, I go train. I do this. I try to help other people. I sit down and do podcasts. Hopefully, maybe one person hears this shit and could be like, I got to look into some of this. Bang. There you go. The change fucking starts.
1: The candle is lit. The
0: candle's lit.
1: Yeah. Well, listen, John, we've taken up a lot of your time. And um, I want to ask you the question that we always ask our guests at at the very end. What are your non-negotiables, those daily habits that you do to tend to your terrain?
0: Like I said, first thing I say, I I acknowledge my uh, connection to the higher power. For me, that's chanting Hare Krishna, right? Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. It's a mantra. Man means mind in Sanskrit. And tra, T-R-A, means to deliver. And the, the mantra, the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra, simply means, oh, Lord, oh, energy of the Lord, please engage me in your devotional service. It's not asking for money. It's not asking for bread. I'm not putting an order into fucking Amazon. You know, I don't want nothing out of it but to just be served, to serve, right? I, I, non-negotiables. I get my writing done. What are my projects? What does my training for that day look like? What is my diet going to look like for that day? At this point, it's just, it's like fucking breathing. It's like, I don't even have to make this whole big thing about it. I've been doing it so long at this point, you know, and, and, and um, trying to help others. Those are, the, those are a few of the non, non-negotiables and, um, have every day be a learning experience. Read, study. I'm reading this book now fucking, cause I'm writing a comedy. So I'm reading the comic toolbox. I'm reading uh this is an amazing fucking book that my girl got me for Valentine's Day. The 12-week year. Amazing. So, you know, and be of service. That's it. Always keep yourself. Always think of yourself low in the lower than the straw in the street, devoid of all sense of false prestige. Always Never looking for honor, but giving honor to others. In that state of con- being more tolerant than a tree. In that state of consciousness, one can constantly chant the holy names of Krishna or God or whatever you you want to call it. You got to stay humble in life, man. So those those are those are some of my principles. You know that I I, I stick with uh, every day. And most most important is reading the, the you know the books of higher consciousness. And there's so many. Uh, you could put the link if anybody cares. Like, you know, there's a, there's a, for the original books, it's the, uh, I can, I can uh, email it to you, but it's the Bhakti Vedanta Vedic Library.org. You can listen to uh, Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam, Isha Upanishads, or you can read them digitally, um, listen to them, uh, audio via audio book, and, and just start to hear. It's Shravanam Kirtanam Vishnu Smaranam. First we hear. Everything is hearing. How did how did how did we end up on this podcast? You heard about some of the shit I'm doing. How did I become plant-based? How did I? I heard about this. Hearing is hearing and sound is the most potent force in this universe. Look at music, right? When people tell me they don't like music, I'm like, I'm staying away from you. (laughs) But it's all about hearing, right? Why does anybody become a musician? Why does anybody become an actor? They're all hearing the knowledge. Like they're hearing about some actor and the amazing thing of like doing a monologue or whatever the fuck it is, you know, music or athlete or or a Navy SEAL or or whatever the fuck you want to do in this world.
1: Well, what was it in the beginning was the word, right? The word was that's God. Right. What is the first light. thing? What did what did God do first? He said, "Let there be light." He spoke.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, that's that's go by that's, that. It's uh, one story. <laughs> that's the whole thing. You know, yeah, there's many stories on it. You know, I, I look at it this. A lot of things are allegorical and meant to yes. tell a philosophical point, and the point gets across, and uh, hopefully, people understand this is the way out of this mess that we're finding ourselves in you know, turn the lens inward, man. That's the whole thing. I try to look at my shortcomings every day and like, did I handle this situation the best? Like, you know, it's constant scrutiny and we're always scrutinizing others. But like I said, do we scrutinize ourselves? Like, and, and I said, because somebody asked me in the press and I just wrote this, if you could go back, you know, after my memoir came out, could you, would you change anything? I said, absolutely not. All of those All of those things I went through made me the person that I am. If I could do anything differently, it would be the way that I reacted in certain situations. uh, That's what I would change. I know better now than to react to certain things that that went down. And some of my reactions were not the best for me or others. So there's always room for improvement. Like Mm. keep the glass half full, learn. All these people that are so puffed up, you see them out there. They, nobody could be, You think you could sit down and have a philosophical conversation about Bill, with Bill Gates or some of these... Or fucking uh, Klaus Schwab or any of these fucking psychopaths that want to just fucking... They think they know everything. You don't know shit. You're fool number one. Birth, death, disease, and old age. How do we solve those problems? That's what Prabhupada said. Where is the university that teaches the science of the soul? He said the universities and the the educational system now is a slaughterhouse for spiritual life. And we're seeing what's going on in these schools now, what they're teaching these kids. They're playing the long ball, Mm -hmm. these motherfuckers doing this shit. They know these kids are going to grow up one day and they're going to be the new leaders. So they are programming these children and these kids and these young leaders. Look at fucking Soros. He's got his kid out there fucking now fucking doing all this shit it's like they they know so you know that that's uh that's that that's my whole thing is look for that alternative it's a little harder to find but it's finding the gym that's you're finding the gym in life man Yeah. so anyway john,
1: john where's the best place for the listener to learn more about you
0: Uh, well, I got books out, uh, but you know, uh, johnjosephdiscipline.com is my website. And, uh, I'm JJ Cromag on Twitter, johnjosephdiscipline on Instagram, blood clot NYC is the band for the, for the new band blood clot. Uh, it's not new. We just put it back together again. (laughs) And, uh, Facebook, John Joseph, whatever, you know, but, uh, I'm I'm speaking I'm doing a cooking demonstration at the St. Louis Veg Fest coming up in October. I, I got races coming up. I love meeting people and, and like hearing their journey. Like I meet people. I met one person and he's like, "Man, I had can I have cancer right now and, and and all this shit." And I met him at Ironman Texas and he finished the Ironman. He's like, "You know, that means the world to me to hear somebody say You know, hey, man, you're hearing your story of what you went through inspired me to tackle this shit. And he wrote me, he survived the cancer and everything. But he did an Ironman with stage three cancer.
1: Amazing.
0: Like fucking, uh, I think he had colon cancer or something. Going through chemotherapy and did an Ironman. It's always that first step. That's what I tell people. I just saw a BJJ instructor, right? And he held up two belts, a white belt and a black belt. And he said to his students, which is the hardest belt to get? Mm -hmm. And everybody said, the black belt. He said, no, the white belt, because that required that initial step of you showing up. And that's what most people don't have the discipline to do. They don't start. So you have to start. Take the first step. When I was, uh, I did Kona Ironman World Championship. I placed top 10% in my age group on the planet. I did Kona twice, 2016 and 17. And when I did it the first year, I came out of day, I got on uh NBC Sports and I didn't even know it. And I was I had just come out, I had dreamed of doing an Iron Man my whole life. Uh getting goosebumps talking about it, but um in particular, Kona. And here I am, and I come out of the water, and I'm standing there and and I'm like tearing up. As I'm getting my bike ready, taking it out of transition. And I just got reflective. I'm like, I'm at Kona World Championship. Like something I dreamed about for fucking, fucking 40 years, man. 30, 30, whatever, almost 40 years. And now I'm about to go ride on the Queen K, man. And I didn't know the camera crew was over there in that moment filming me. And the voiceover said, no doctor can write you a prescription for this. And in that same race, there was this guy that went through cancer, got chemotherapy, was in the hospital for months, and then needed a heart transplant. And was still in the hospital, but always wanted to do Kona World Championship. He's, and and they, they do the athlete stories on NBC. And they did his story. And he said, my first step was crawling out of the bed over to the wall and standing up. Imagine that. There wasn't a fucking dry eye. And that guy crossed that fucking finish line. It was unbelievable. You see these guys with veterans with legs blown off and all this shit. And it's like, they're testing themselves. So test yourself. Take the first step. Don't be a day, don't be a one day motherfucker. Be a day one motherfucker. (laughs) Be that person that says today, I'm going to not do drugs. I'm not going to drink. I'm going to start training. I'm going to get on a better diet. I'm going to turn my life around. That's what it takes. Don't keep writing post-dated checks. It's like somebody gives you a check for a million dollars but you can't cash it till 2150. What fucking good is that for you? That's not doing you anything. Start today. Invest, put money in that bank account. That's what it's all about.
1: I love it. Well, John Joseph, here's to taking that first step. Here's to lighting candles, man. And we really appreciate hey, you light coming more on.
0: Candles, Everybody that hear this, you change, you go help the next person in line, pay it forward. That's what my teacher said. You can never pay this back. You pay it forward. You go help the next person in line. That that that's the key to life. When you're always of service, there's no question of exploiting somebody else. All the bullshit goes away. Chinana peace on Stay humble. Remain in a service position. Prabhupada always called it the service attitude. That's the positive mental attitude. That's the PMA. Right? Without that, what what is there? What we have today in society. It's all over here. Just open that shit up. It's disgusting. It's disgusting and vile what humans are doing to each other now. And it can be better. We can do better. But don't worry about the next person. Fix yourself. Change starts with you. I always say charity starts at home. Fix your shit. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Put that science into your life. That's what I did. That's why, I, I, you know, I just wish, you know, my brother Frank, like he was so kind and good to everybody else and always willing to help. I just wish he he had that same, that he gave that same self-love to himself, that same love he gave to everybody else. I wish he could have just given it to himself, but he can't. He didn't. So I have to... Use his death in a positive way. I'm not trying to get sympathy. I'm not out for sympathy or anything. I'm trying to take a negative situation and, and make something positive out of it. Say, hey, man, you don't, you don't need to end up like this. And my guitar player and all these other motherfuckers that died. And, and ruin their lives and their families. You know, I'll leave you with this one last thing. I've been feeding the homeless in New York since 82. KRS-One, I just posted a video, and he came up with his name by us going to the men's shelter. I'm the one that set that program up in New York in 82. So we would feed at Tonka Square Park, and then we would go over to the men's shelter on 3rd Street, where he was, and feed there. And then if we had anything left after that, we'd go to the Bowery Mission. It was, it was just service. I knew what it was like to be hungry, so I, I wanted to make sure people had good clean, pure, vegetarian food. That's where KRS-One got the Bhagavad Gita. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because I would see this person and he would come and get the food and never talk. He would go, you know, like sit by himself in the park and eat. And, you know, it was this white guy. And I was like, yo, I sat with him one day and we started talking, you know, and and I kind of had to be like, You know, I was homeless. Like, I know what it took for me. How how did you become homeless? And you could see he was resistant in telling me. um, But he was like, I was a stockbroker on Wall Street. I was making a quarter million dollars a year. Had the condo, the summer home, the cars, the wife and the kids. He said, my wife and kids were killed by a drunk driver. I dealt with that by drinking. Then I started doing drugs. Then I stopped going to work. Then I lost my apartment. Then I was homeless. So he said that he was on the Manhattan Bridge and he was going to jump to his death. And he said a vision of his kids came in his head. And it was like, don't do this. Right? So he didn't. And that was his awakening. But then he would come and help us set up. Like I became real tight with him. And we would have the conversations. And then I stopped seeing him for a while. He fucking, I was like, fuck, man. I fucking hope this dude didn't do something drastic. And then he showed up with a fucking suit on. Cleaned up. I was like, holy shit. Like, he goes, yeah, man, I just want to thank you for those conversations because you were never judgmental. You just listened to what I had to say. And you were never judgmental toward me. And I had this experience where I was going to jump. And, and my kids came and and then I, I said, I got to go to rehab. And he did. And he got... You know, and eventually he met someone else and started a family. Just like my friend Kevin McQuaid, I remembered his last name. He had cancer and he he didn't have insurance. So he started robbing banks. He was on the fucking, he was on the cover of fucking The Post. Like robbing banks to pay for his cancer surgery. And then they caught him on St. Patrick's Day. But he was getting fucked up in the meantime. And... I w- and, and and he got sent to prison, and they took out all his intestines, and then he became homeless on the streets when he got out. And he was a fan of the Cro-Mag so we would always talk. And uh, you know, I would find him. He got real bad, like I would find him, you know, just going to the bathroom on himself, laying in the hot sun. I always try to find him and feed him, you know. And then I stopped seeing him for a while, and I thought he died. Because the last time I saw him, he was really bad. And then one day I go into Angelica's kitchen, and he's sitting there at the fucking table when I walk in, smiling, cleaned up. I was like... And he goes, I got six months fucking clean, bro. And we were friends all the way up until... And he said the same thing. You never judged me. You always had compassion and tried to help. And unfortunately... He relapsed uh, over some relationship shit and then got drunk one day. He was, you know, out on the streets again and fell down the subway stairs because it was pouring rain. And he he slipped on the subway and smashed his head. And his parents called me up, his sister, who I had been in touch or whatever, somebody, and said, come say goodbye to Kevin. We're going to take him off life support. And I was like, what the fuck? So I went. I said my prayers to him. I put some holy water from the Ganges on him. I put some of these Tulsi beads. I played Prabhupada chanting in the room. And I said, I love you, brother. See you on the other side. But it's the same thing. We don't know what people are going through in this world. You know, Kevin was abused as a child. So we don't know what people go through. We can't judge someone just because they're doing drugs or or in a bad place. Because we don't know what's going to happen. Even in our life, something can happen tomorrow. We think we got our shit all together and then some tragedy could come. It took a lot for me when my brother just died and my mom and and dealing with that. But never once did I say the answer to this is going to be going and relapsing. Yeah. Like I said, I, three hours after I got that call, I was on my fucking computer and I said this is the chapter I never wanted to write but now I must. And I doubled down on on the training and the exercise and 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 the helping other people. I actually offered a free kickstarter course. Anybody that wanted to sign up. Hey man, take this course for free. I had like 40 people. Like pay it forward. That's what life is all about. I got Guess we could fucking end it there, but uh you know.
1: John, we appreciate the time immensely Thank you, man. and um and just giving us a lot to think about and hopefully the listener as well. And we'll put links to uh in the show notes to where people can learn more about you. Please do send the emails of those resources you were gonna send to us. Yeah, I'm gonna um,
0: send that to you when I when I get off this call. I'll send okay. the uh you know, you know social media, but i I'll, I'll put the link to get those books because you know those books. Can help people man
1: and um and, and let's stay in touch because we'd love to get you back on when you finish your book and it's time to get yeah, that out to the people the next
0: book and uh, you know i got whatever i'm just i just work hard every day man yeah, what do. else what else is there what when, uh,
2: else? When, when is the one-man show gonna hit the road
0: uh well we're gonna launch it in new york in the fall this fall yeah
2: all right I'm, so I'm, I'm, It's i'm
0: gonna be it's gonna be like you know so it's gonna be something else man
2: yeah i i have no doubt about that i very much look forward to that yeah so All it's,
0: right. uh, it's kind of like the early days of when chaz palmentary did the bronx tale it was his bronx tale this is my tale of being in new york and what yeah. i went through and how like the city itself is, is alive man it's a character yeah. You know, back then for people that actually came from New York and, and saw what it was, every neighborhood was different. The Bronx, all this. And, you know, my experience came in Alphabet City, you know, like down on the Lower East Side. So uh yeah, man, I'm excited for that. I'm I'm writing it. Um, so yeah, we'll get we'll get to that. Um it's just another medium, man, to be able to express and tell story and uh you know, meet people and all that. So
1: all right. Well we look forward to it. John Joseph, thanks for joining all us. All
0: the best, bro. Peace out. The after party, the
1: after party in the pineal room. All right, welcome everybody. Welcome Doctor Miranda to the after party in the pineal room.
2: Welcome, Doctor Hardy. Hello.
1: Hi. Right. Uh, just a quick shout out to Tony Abram-Cotton, who chimed in on a Facebook post and, and mentioned um, that he preferred the previous Pineal Room ditty.
2: <laughs> so which one did you just spin, I wonder? Well, we'll time will tell.
1: Well, I, I we usually I usually stick with him for a little while. Right. So it's the most recent one, and he, he liked the one before that. Yeah. Um, but I appreciate that people have their... I mean, people have their opinions. I, I don't really think about it. I don't rank them. I just go, uh, my favorite is the one that I'm working on. That's it. <laughs> Whatever the next one's going to be. Don't look back, baby. Don't look back. I mean, speaking of looking back, uh, that was just, that was that was pretty incredible. I don't know how we unpack that, that conversation adequately, but that's what we're here for. <laughs> So I'm going to turn it over. I'm just going to turn it over to you. And, yeah, and I you want to are, get your, aren't you? I just, yeah, I am. I want. I want to get your reflections. <laughs> I had. I made. I made a bunch of notes, but let's let's just have you kick off. What do you think about that?
2: I mean, to state the obvious, that was sort of a master class sermon from a true punk rock warrior shaman poet. I mean, someone who's been through the fire and lived to tell the tale. I mean. The fact that he's lived the life he's lived and seen, like, the worst of humanity, up close and personal, lived it, uh, the beatings and the murders and the rapes and the drugs and the the kill-on-sight orders, I mean, just just depraved American culture at its worst, I would argue, and to look and see what he's become. That he lives a life of service and turning the camera inward and starting with himself and, and taking that, you know, the, I wax poetic when I say to start a journey, you must first begin it, but that's, that's it. That's the lesson. That story he told about the, the white belt being harder to achieve than the black belt. That's it, man. I, I resonated with him on so many points, the, the being a sponge for knowledge and reading and sourcing books and, and trying to untangle what this whole grasping towards higher consciousness actually means. And I had no idea that he had, I'd listened to him on Rogan and I've, I follow him on socials and I feel like I was sort of... Primed for what he was about, but I didn't realize how integral the Hari Krishna commitment was uh, for him historically and in present. Um, and just this beautiful hybrid of like Rastafari, Hari Krishna, punk rock ethos, um, raw diet living, uh, Iron Man. Like I think it speaks to me because you know me, Ben. It's like I, I love all what I call all the extracurriculars. I love music. And I love sports and I love just like the, whatever I could get my hands on. I feel like John Joseph, like he had demons that he bought. He fought back for the first, whatever, couple decades. And then he's like, holy fuck, there's a world out there. And he, <laughs> whatever, with that candle that was lit by HR or whoever, um, it was un extinguishable. Once that fire was lit, he just like went whole hog devouring anything he could get his hands on. And I feel like that's sort of where I'm at right now in terms of, you talk, You call it the fire hose, right? The fire hose of information. I mean, I I have more, I've bought more books in the last three years than any other time in my life. And it's, um, it's this, if you're going to be addicted to something, be addicted to knowledge. Right. But I got to say his commitment to like a raw diet, vegan, oh he doesn't like that word, but the, the plant-based diet, it's really a content, a contentious issue in the health space, in the cultural space. Um, you know, and I'll just, just to finish off. It's like, I, I had written these notes down before we even started talking, but like, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I do a lot of reading one day. This guy, there's a, Functional medicine doctor saying all plants are trying to kill you. You shouldn't eat plants. The next day there's a herbalist saying there's a plant or an herb for every illness. We should listen to our herbs. The next day you should only eat fruit to achieve enlightenment. And then the next day, you know, the ancestral diet, the 14 tribes, Weston a price studied, they were the healthiest, you know, specimens of human humanity. So it's like, there's just a lot to sift through but i got to say coming from a man like john joseph um i'm more inclined to 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 honor his wisdom with regards to diet from coming from a man like him because he's really like tested the metal um and you know there's the biological um approach to diet but then there is that philosophical one which i think is easier to brush off like well i don't i've had vegetarian friends say like i don't eat anything with a face or like and john just said straight up it's like i don't want anything to do with mutilation and murder and like you know as a carnivore myself i i resonate with that uh ethos but i conveniently do brush it under the rug (laughs) um and i whether it's rationalization or like oh well mineral density and well i only eat grass-fed local organic yeah but someone had to put a fucking bullet in that skull too it's like it's a lot to sift through but the conviction with which he speaks with the lived experience the testament that his, you know, his training and his passion and his creativity and his obsession with expression, it sort of speaks for itself that whatever he's doing, whether it's right for everybody, it's not for me to say, but it's obviously right for him.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and I, again, we come back to, we come back to Quinn that there's no one right way to live. He used his body as a laboratory, found out what worked for him clearly the physical side of things this material world this this uh machine body of his and ours can do it on a plant based if he can be doing multiple iron men and have the energy to do everything that he's doing in his life it can be done one does not appear to need uh meat from an animal to do all these things that he is doing the one the aspect of this conversation that i'm now most interested in is not necessarily the philosoph- the philo- philosophical one although that certainly interested me because again like you pointed out what he had been through in his life and the violence that he had been through and the decision i'm not going to i'm not going to i'm not going to be a part of that when it comes to what i eat but i'm i'm most interested in the spiritual side i think i'm re- uh, that's what i'm most intrigued by and I'm seeing and hearing these conversations around the spiritual awakening, whatever that even means, and trying to, to to trace this connection between what we eat and the ability to like know ourselves spiritually or do that spiritual work, do that internal work, that reflection work and it feels to me that I keep coming back to like plant-based or like fruit- based. And that in that journey, there's there's this question mark around meat. And I, you know, what I I also have been thinking about, like the longer journey of humanity, and thinking, okay, well, maybe there was a time when eating meat made a lot of sense, and it was like you were hunter gatherers, you were connected. Humans were connected to nature. And it was all, you were back in, you were in the, you were in the food chain, you were part of the food chain. And so you were in that regard, like no different from the lion taking something and eating it. And there was a beauty to that. And there was a harmony to that. And there's like a spiritual rightness to that. But where we are now, and our overall, like big picture humanity, and how we consume meat, how we raise meat, how we kill meat, that maybe right now, like we need to move away. From that and 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 maybe me, and I'm looking at myself and going, maybe I do need to step away from that, and even though I have access to like grass fed beef that's only like like John said, only touched grass, only eaten grass, had the best life, I'm still contributing to this like overall machine that a big part of it does not respect that life and is not connected to nature, and so maybe that is my my contribution to at least moving away from the the violence that is this thing and over to eating plants and fruit. I mean, I've already like reincorporated fruit into my diet in a major way. I'd say like, that's the majority of what I'm eating right now, reintroduced plants and stuff. And I'm still eating meat, but I have way more questions about it. And I'm very interested in what would happen to me on all those fronts if I took meat out completely and, and just and, and prayed and continued to pray and continue to do the, like, the, the inner work. So I, um, it's the timing's bad because I just split a cow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, although yeah. I haven't put the deposit down on that. Uh, and I think this might be the next step for me is to, because uh, I don't think I've, I can't recall a time in my life when I've been vegetarian. I don't think I've done that for any like significant stretch of time. And I think I would like to do it. I mean, I should experience that. My body should be my laboratory and see what that does for me, particularly now as both of us are are really exploring like the inner work, the spiritual work, whatever again, whatever that means, prayer, connection to like source or or the creator. Um, what happens? What happens when I remove meat?
2: I mean, yes. And there's this I, I have this sneaky suspicion that the the deeper your spiritual practice and thereby connection becomes, the more you are f- literally fed by that. I think you have, like, that is a sustenance in and of itself. I mean, we've flirted with this idea because we've explored water fasting this idea that you can, you can, um, you can live your life on nothing but water for extended periods of time. And then you slowly refeed. You don't refeed with beef jerky. You refeed with coconut water and fruit and mango. And so there's something to that. I, you know, and I guess you could file that under like gluttony being one of the deadly sins. It's like, you know, we, yes, we live in the land of plenty, but like that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, fucking gorge yourself on all that is available in the horn of plenty, and so there's, yeah, it's, it's opposite.
1: It, I, you have to look at that and go because we because we think that everything is broken in this civilizational system, that aspect of it is also broken, and we should eschew that. I mean, that should be step one. And in in God, man, they talk. He talks about that is the importance of not overdoing it you know, of not oversatiating on things like food and, and wanton sex, which again is like one of the pillars that, um, that John Joseph was talking about. So mo- like moderation, not- mm-hmm. and I think about that all the time now when I'm eating and I go, I'm full, I don't need to continue eating. And like, I don't need to reach for something at like eight o'clock at night. Like I've mm-hmm. already had my dinner, um, because I think when you get full on that stuff down here, and you you're not leaving space, are you? You're not leaving like space for the fullness that comes from and the richness that comes from prayer and connection. I don't. Yeah, I mean, you just, I mean yeah. You,
2: he talked a lot about drugs as a means of suppressing traumatic events, but I think it's well known that, that people use food for the very same thing.
1: Right, right, right. Um, so gambling, lot, gambling yeah. was an interesting one gambling i started thinking about what it means to gamble and trying to tie it and i'm not there yet so i'm going to ramble i'm going to i'm going to ramble and stumble sure. through this but quinn and the exiting eden as allegory for man adopting totalitarian agriculture to be god right to control the outcomes of the food and over overgrow and then hoard and what is ga- like this idea of gambling you're trying to profit off of like the unknown you know the thing that is unknowable to us as humans and you are somehow like predicting or guessing or profiting off of it like why is gambling held up as this thing that you should not do Like, why is gambling this thing that is held up as as being unholy or a sin or something that leads you away from spirituality and knowing? Can you answer that? I'm I'm like I'm I'm moving on it, I'm I'm machinating on it, and I'm not there yet, but I this is a seed that's been planted and I really want to better understand it. Certainly we know that gambling can be an addiction, but why is gambling an addiction? And what is the connection between gambling and like spirituality, and it as a sin. I'm pro- I'm sure the answer is like out there, and it's I available. But, but
2: right, well, that's the fun you and I have as we get yeah. to hash hash this stuff out in on a public forum. Mm. Uh, but uh, I think it must have something. And I sort of had my ham-fisted little, you know, comment about the stock market being sort of the greater expression Big of time. of uh, w- which our whole economy is predicated on. On on the stock market, I mean, we live and die uh, in America in the world stage on this the market, right? But I think I think in an oversimplified way of approaching this, it it's it's the it's the conniving, manipulative part of, for lack of a better term, uh, crony capitalism or or abusing the system, trying to take advantage uh and cheat i think it breeds lying and cheating and stealing to get ahead in its wake i think Mm -hmm. there's something that um doesn't appeal to our braver angels or whatever it is i think it breeds corruption this idea of gambling it's not like in the voluntary lens it's it's an it's a, a mutually agreeable exchange of goods and services in a in a voluntary society whereas this i feel like it's trying to exploit loopholes and take advantage and and don't do it's it doesn't foster the idea of doing things the right way it just fosters the idea of taking advantage of loopholes and doing things that maximize profit to you uh, come hell or high water right? It's to make as much money as cheaply and as quickly as possible. And that does not breed good habits.
1: And I'm with you. I agree with you. That is a, that's the greed aspect. And that's like a morality thing. And I'm, I'm trying to go. I, and I, I agree with you hundred percent. I'm trying to go a little bit deeper and like, what is existence? What do we have? And I guess part of this is dovetails with me trying to get into meditation more and And uh meditation is all about being here and being present, and gambling is all about existing in the future hmm. like gambling is all about i'm going to bet on what I think is going to happen, so you are perpetually existing in the future and the and un- the unknown rather than being here now. Hmm and that's not the only reason i would say gambling would be a sin but that's one that comes to mind just because i'm 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 trying to i'm really trying to yeah. incorporate meditation into my my ha- my daily and not just meditation but also like just being present more often and uh, gambling is certainly like the easiest way not only to like be ex- exist outside the present but then to try to like monetize that
2: yeah well and you know and yet there's nothing one has to prepare for the future you want to have half a cow in your freezer maybe and that's the other thing we live in the frozen north in the wintertime, long winters you can't like walk out your door and like pick a pineapple 12 months a year so there's other things to consider just like getting through the week having said that you know if we had more time in our lives for uh, meditation and a spiritual connection maybe there would be less need and fear of 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 not having not being able to provide
1: also gambling when you gamble you're not an active participant in bettering anything are you you know when you gamble when you gamble on the outcome of something that you don't really control necessarily unless it's like the roll of a dice so you're not you're not like an active participant in in any sort of like betterment you're not in service to anything you're literally just going like there's a like for example there's a there's a football game on TV. I'm going to say that this team's going to win and now all your like energy and focus is on the outcome of something that is meaningless. You're not bettering yourself. You're not making use of the time that's given to you to do anything productive. Like you said like we have to we have to put food on the table. We have to go out and you know grow food and then harvest food or do a job. Like gambling you're not doing any of that. Are you? You're just like an observer who's also trying to monetize the outcome of something that hasn't happened yet, and you're of no service to anyone or anything—not yeah. even yourself. Yeah. But anyway, they—that's just like one tiny aspect of one of the things we talked about.
2: Yeah, no, it's 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 a fun one to to mull over because you know he he sort of lists the four pillars, and that was one of four.
1: Yeah. So it stood out. It stood out. And then, of course, um, you know, the other one was like, what, uh, sex, like just, um, I don't know, pr- promiscuity, I guess you could say. And, mm-hmm. and that, t- you know, that comes back to like, well, Blunderfield and semen retention. Then, of course, like God man and like the mm-hmm. preservation of the seed. And, mm-hmm. uh, that one's such a, fa- and then, and, and, and the preponderance of porn in our world and how easy with the internet, especially how easy it is for anybody to mm-hmm. access like porn unlimited it's almost like this whole anyway that one i get
2: i mean porn is the obvious like sort of extreme right but like but any sitcom or movie or really any cultural media that you consume is is just this sort of fast and loose culture and you know the whole like Uh, pro-life pro-choice debate it's he he posed the question i've I've even heard naomi wolf posed the same question someone who's like a proud feminist from the left like uh, that why do we have so many unwanted children it's because we just exploit and celebrate sex as a culture we we've elevated it to this place that is completely unnatural so of course we're going to be having a lot of sex and ending up uh with unwanted pregnancies and that is not normal
1: it's not normal, no, no, yeah. You know, there. It, it felt like as we were going, as we continued on with him, it just felt more and more connections and overlaps with, with where we are, and also where we've been, and some of the the cultures, and peoples, and musics that we were steeped in. As as, as like Rasta, like when he starts talking about like Ooh. Rastafarian and Ayatollah, it's like. You have no idea how deeply that was speaking to me, I know, and I knew you know and you as well so man what a what an absolute pleasure and honor to have him on and
2: i mean, isn't it I love a guy like that where i mean first of all, congratulations for getting him on i mean he's he's a cultural icon and he's been on some pretty big shows um so honored that he would do ours but uh like, you know, we you were prepared, you're a pro, you've got a list of questions. He does you know, it's a guy like that. You don't need, you don't really need a list of questions because, no. I mean, you just let him go. Yeah. Let him go. He, we could have talked for seven hours straight a guy, with a guy like that. Easily. Yeah. yeah. Really yeah. heartfelt, really genuine. I mean, he, uh, he teared up several times. I teared up. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's just a guy like that who can cut through the bullshit and get right to the heart of, of what matters. Like yeah. that. No yeah. time for bullshit.
1: No. No. Well, I hope, um I hope, listener, that you go check out um Discipline dot com. Go check out what you know what he's up to as a coach, as a motivational speaker, also as an athlete, just an absolute badass athlete doing Ironman triathlons, and also the works that he've, he's done, the books that he's put out there, the positive mental attitude, which he adopted from work, his time with Bad Brains, and now just permeates his life and and the mission of his life. I think there's so much value there um, for, for anyone out there uh, looking to better themselves. I think his story is just so compelling. And he, as a human, the human story is so freaking compelling. So I, I do hope that we can get him back on maybe when his book on addiction is ready to come out because I think that's another fascinating conversation to be having around the idea of health um, yeah. and terrain.
2: Absolutely. I'm really keen to see his one-man show. In fact, I have half a mind to try and book it out of hoot one of these days. I mean,
1: come on. Yeah. 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 Um, Hey, Mike, I, uh, I'm going to throw you I'm gonna put you on the spot right now. I'm not throwing you into the bus. I'm putting you on the spot. This is your chance to shine. Uh oh. Two totally different things. You want to do the? You want to do the um the wrap up? Me? Go.
2: All right. Well, first I'll tell one more story. I have one. <laughs> I have one bad brain story. Okay. And yes. Yes. I'm stalling. Um, I I live in just outside of Woodstock, New York, and I met Daryl Jennifer. Uh, on a round of golf of all places at the Woodstock (laughs) golf course. It was me and my friend Pete who's a a great drummer and audio engineer. I was like really getting into golf. This is like 15 years ago Um, and the Woodstock golf course I find it sort of ironic that it's a private membership golf course. It's like Woodstock, peace, love, music, community. No, private golf course. <laughs> it's like, and it's like the first thing you see when you roll into town. It's sort of demonstrative of of uh, of Woodstock as a whole in some some ways. Um, but anyway, I I knew that Pete was a member. I was like, is there any chance like we could go golfing together? He's like, yeah, sure. I'll set it up with my friend Daryl. And so it was me and Pete and Daryl Jennifer from Bad Brains and. Uh, Daryl's like uh, a great golfer and he's all like decked out in his golf attire and we're at whatever like the 7th or 8th hole and he's got this he's like ah he's got this like approach shot to the green that he wants to make he's like this is the club I should use but I can't use this club it was like some pitching wedge because it always gets stuck in my dreadlocks on my backswing (laughs) 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 <laughs> so fucking funny! It just killed me that his dreadlocks were a liability for his pitching wedge backswing. Anyway, that's my that's my only bad brain story. Um, Amazing, but uh, folks, nothing you you heard here shall be taken should be taken as medical advice. As Ben and I are not medical professionals, we are podcast doctors, and you are love you are light you do have it in you to be disciplined and we'll catch you on the next one